Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is the Age of Ecology on Ideas. Tonight we'll explore the implications of a theory which could revolutionise the science of ecology, Lynn Margulis and James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis. You'll hear from cultural historian William Owen Thompson. One person called me uh, Lovelock and Margulis' uh, Thomas Huxley, that I was their bulldog, because I went around uh, compiling these conferences and doing conferences and things with them in, in Italy and New York and in, in San Francisco. And uh, there may be some truth in that. And from the originator of the Gaia hypothesis, scientist James Lovelock. Most scientists, for some peculiar reason, are quite naive about cybernetics. They don't seem to understand that a thermostat operates by an entirely circular logic, and it's pointless to try and enter it in a cause-and-effect manner. And the same is true of the automatic pilot that operates an aeroplane, the same is true of you or I, and the same is true of Gaia. We are cybernetic systems. The Gaia Hypothesis, Part 6 of The Age of Ecology, written and presented by David Cayley. The Gaia Hypothesis takes its name from the ancient Greek goddess of the earth, Gaia, the mother of the gods. The name was suggested by the novelist William Golding. Golding and James Lovelock were neighbors at the time that Lovelock conceived the idea that planet Earth might constitute a single cybernetic system. And when Lovelock explained the theory to Golding during a walk round their rural English village, Golding proposed the name. It was a portentous choice. The evocation of Mother Earth and the ancient religion of the goddess gave the theory a cultural resonance lacking in a bald scientific statement of the idea that the Earth is self-regulating. The idea of Gaia, dovetailed with feminism's recovery of the goddess, inspired artists like musician Paul Winter to create his Misa Gaia, or Earth Mass, and helped focus the concern of environmental movements on the planet as a whole. The theory, in a sense, was overwhelmed by its own cultural implications, but Gaia remains primarily a scientific hypothesis, which holds that life on Earth produces and regulates its own environment, or better, that life on Earth is its own environment. The origins of the Gaia hypothesis lie in some work Jim Lovelock did for the U.S. government's National Aeronautics and Space Administration in the 60s. It was during the planning phase of NASA's Viking mission to Mars, and Lovelock and his colleague Diane Hitchcock were asked to devise experiments that could detect the presence of life on Mars, should such exist. Lovelock, with the naivete of genius, decided to turn the question round and perform a thought experiment designed to detect life on Earth. We thought, well, we'd better check our theory by looking at a planet that does have life on it. And, of course, the only one we know about is the Earth. And it's quite easy to do a Gedanken experiment and set up an infrared telescope on Mount Olympus and look back at the Earth. So we did this. And when we looked back, and we found an atmosphere that was wildly anomalous. And it's a strange, wonderful and beautiful anomaly that sort of shouted a song of life, as I said, right across the solar system right out into the galaxy. Um, just if somebody says, well, what do you mean by this? What anomalies? I'd say, well, just consider two of the gases, oxygen and methane. Oxygen's present at 
methane's present at one and a half parts per million, a mere trace, you may think, but their coexistence at a steady state in an atmosphere represents an anomaly measured in hundreds of orders of magnitude as far as its disequilibrium goes. You see, for methane and oxygen to coexist in an atmosphere on a planet at that steady state means that something must be making the methane and something must be making the oxygen because they react together and they use each other up. And knowing the volume of the Earth's atmosphere and the rate of reaction which you can calculate from the intensity of sunlight in the Earth's atmosphere, because it's that which causes them to react, you can calculate that the something must be introducing no less than a thousand million tons of methane every year into the atmosphere, and something must also be introducing something like 4,000 million tons of oxygen every year into the atmosphere to account for the losses from the reaction of these two substances. And there just aren't any non-living processes that can do that in an atmosphere uh, such as the Earth. So the answer must be that there's life. So we reported this to our sponsors, NASA. They couldn't have been more disgusted. <laughs> you see, not only had we proven that there wasn't any life on Mars, and they badly needed life on Mars to justify sending Viking there, but much worse than this, we'd used NASA funds to prove that there was life on Earth. And <laughs> we were, they were scared witless that the message would get back to Senator Proxmire. And <laughs> you can just imagine the questions he would ask about this waste of NASA money. Of course, he would have been wrong, as he always is. Uh, it wasn't a waste of money, because looking at the Earth that way was as much a scientific revelation, I think, as the view that astronauts had. I mean, the astronauts, when they first saw the Earth, many of them said, Rush de Schweinkert was one, my God, this thing must be alive, it's so beautiful, it's so, so, uh, so much a whole. But what we were seeing was a hard science suggestion that there must be life. Uh, you see, to keep all those unstable gases at a perfect steady state requires a lot of organization. But much more remarkable than this, how on earth could an atmosphere that was a bit like the gases that go into the intake manifold of an internal combustion engine be just right for life? I mean, this was even more extraordinary. And, of course, that's what made me think, well, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way round. Uh, the atmosphere isn't an environment for life. It's something that life has made uh, as an environment for itself. It's something it has chosen and deliberately keeps going because it likes it that way. And that, of course, was the Gaia hypothesis, and that's how it started. At the time that you were having these thoughts, what was the mainstream scientific thinking about the origin of the atmosphere? Much as it is now, that it was pure geology, that the biota was just a passenger on the planet and had very little to do with it. It just used the... Uh, oxygen, we use it and we burn the carbonaceous matter and we turn, return CO2 and the plants take in the CO2 and push back oxygen. It just goes round and round in a cycle and does nothing, said the geologists. Uh, life has no effect on the geological evolution of the planet. Uh, they're so locked into their paradigm that they don't seem to be able to realize how inconsistent their position is. Uh, the question I always ask is, well, what would happen if all life suddenly ceased on Earth now? What do you suppose the atmosphere would be? 
And they rarely ever give a straightforward answer, but you can quite simply calculate it and model it, and you find that in the course of perhaps a million years, it takes a long time for geological processes to go through, we would finish up with an atmosphere very like that of Mars or Venus. It would be dominated by CO2, there would be very little oxygen at all, probably no nitrogen, uh, certainly no methane, and uh, the planet would probably be very hot indeed, sort of not as hot as Venus, but getting too far too hot for life. Can you explain some of the Gaian mechanisms? For example, perhaps the oxygen-methane cycle? I could, but that's a more difficult one. Let me explain one of the ones that we know best about, and that's the CO2 one, because it's, there's a lot of contemporary interest in that too. You see, one of the more convincing bits of evidence for Gaia was the constancy of the climate throughout geological time. For three and a half thousand million years, the time that life has been on Earth, nearly half the age of the universe, well, a third of the age of the universe, that is, uh, the temperature has been constant, the climate's been constant, and yet the sun has been steadily warming up. And this is, I think, one of the strongest arguments in favour of regulation. So how did it happen? Well, one geochemist, Jim Walker, tried to explain it on purely geological grounds. He said, or rather accepted, the geological evidence that right back in the beginning, when life started, there was a great deal of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, perhaps as much as 30% of the atmosphere of CO2. And that's what kept the Earth warm and enabled life to get its start. He then said that the simple process of weathering that's the reaction of carbon dioxide with calcium silicate rock, uh, which removes carbon dioxide from the air and deposits it in the sea as limestone, would account for a steady diminution of CO2 over time, which would exactly equal the rate of rise of solar luminosity. It was a nice theory and a good try, but when you put the numbers in it, it wouldn't work. And I thought that he'd done exactly the right thing. The only thing he'd done wrong was to leave life out. You see, life is very much in the business of weathering, of rock digesting, and so on and so forth. And Jim Walker's process can be made to work beautifully if you put life there. If you analyze the soil in most places on the Earth, you'll find that its carbon dioxide content is 30 times higher than that of the atmosphere. So on the soil, in the soil everywhere, life is pumping CO2 out of the air as hard as it can in order to get it to react better with a calcium silicate rock and get Jim Walker's reluctant chemistry to proceed. In other words, Gaia fac facilitates the process that the geologists had envisaged. And without life, it wouldn't happen. And in the sea, the same process is going on. The sea is continuously pumping CO2 out of the air and down to the depths. There's a constant rain of shells of calcium carbonate bearing uh, creatures that take it right down to the bottom, a sort of conveyor belt. And without their pumping, CO2 would rapidly rise in concentration and make the Earth uninhabitable by living things. And it's, that is a feedback system which is operated uh, right the way back from the beginning. The objections that have been made to your hypothesis by Fort Doolittle of Dalhousie, for example, center on the fact that it offends against conventional Darwinian notions 
of how natural selection operates because he claims that there would have to have been foresight or planning amongst the biota, which is denied a priori by the theory. How do you respond to that? His criticism was understandable in the context of biology as it interprets Darwin uh, uh, nowadays. It's just like the geologists I spoke of earlier. They live in a paradigm which does not see a world where the environment and life are so tightly coupled as to constitute a single cybernetic system. They see the evolution of the species as taking place independently almost of the environment. The species may adapt to changes in the physical environment, but they don't see that the, the, the evolution of a different species automatically changes the environment, changes the rules of the game in which the next species is going to evolve, and that this tight coupling is what uh, makes Gaia work. Jim Lovelock first formulated the Gaia hypothesis in the 1960s. One of the few scientific colleagues who took his idea seriously was American microbiologist Lynn Margulis, and they have collaborated ever since. She filled in many of the details of the theory from her studies in microbial evolution, describing how microbes have altered both the atmosphere and the surface of the Earth, and emphasizing how much more important symbiosis and cooperation have been in evolution than competition. Ten years later, in the 70s, this work caught the eye of cultural historian William Irwin Thompson. As a cultural historian, Thompson believes that science is always embedded in some larger story, and he saw in the Gaia hypothesis the scientific narrative that could knit together a planetary culture. Bill Thompson is a poet, essayist, and author. His 13 books range from 1971's Evil and World Order to last year's Imaginary Landscapes, Making Worlds in Myth and Science. He's also director of the Lindisfarne Association, a loose affiliation of thinkers devoted to fostering a planetary culture. The association is named after a Celtic monastery established in the 7th century off the coast of Northumbria. Lindisfarne was one of the centers from which the medieval Christian civilization spread through Europe, a place where the ideas of classical civilization were miniaturized, as Thompson put it, into a curriculum for a new age. The new Lindisfarne, founded in 1973, was to be a seed of planetary civilization. It became the intellectual vanguard of the New Age movement, at a time when New Age still meant something more than crystals channeling and feeling good about yourself. In 1989, Bill Thompson brought out a collection of essays called Gaia, A Way of Knowing, subtitled Political Implications of the New Biology. Ecology, he states in this book, will be the political science of the future, and Gaia the sign of a new way of knowing the world. The following interview was recorded last fall at the home of Tim Wilson and Andrea Milenkovic. The quintessential idea in Lovelock is that worlds embrace repulsions, you know, and that processes that seem to be uh, violently opposed can be constitutive of other architectures of order. So one animal's excrement becomes the food for another bacteria, and that the planet is a delicately balanced thing between 
the fixed and the fluid. The continental plates are fixed, more or less, over time. They are also another kind of fluid, but for the sake of time, they're fixed, and the gaseous atmosphere is fluid. So a healthy living system like us, with our fixed skeleton and our, our fluid uh, rivers of blood, have to embrace these opposites. And if we don't, then we come up with uh, defensive mechanisms of trying to crystallize value into a gene, a subatomic particle, a museum, a currency, a metal. And all of these, these ideas of value fixed in objects are perishing everywhere you look in the culture, whether you look in art or whatever. And the really good way to get a handle on that and understand it is, I think, with Lovelock and, and Margulis. So for me, they're the quintessential shift from ideological thinking to ecological thinking. What does the Gaia hypothesis say to our more traditional ideas of nature, the objective existence of nature? Well, you have a real problem in your language right there. Not you, but one. Um, first of all, it says that nature is, a, is an arbitrary threshold. You cut a square in the universe and you stand on the bottom of that square and you call that threshold the window and on the other side nature. But are, where are you going to cut that square? Are you going to do it at the molecular level and see the entrancing dance of molecules and flashing electric skins and light that might be at another threshold pollution? And this beautiful vision you're having of the dance of molecules in nature might be a New Jersey toxic dump. But if you're inside it, at the molecular level, it could be wonderfully natural. Or you could be at a level of a supernova exploding and just creating havoc. And that can be nature, too. So when we say nature, we're really influenced by the Sierra Club calendars, the Elliot Porter photographs, the Ansel Adams, which is influenced by Constable and is influenced by Gainsborough, <coughs> and is a kind of 18th century gentlemanly vision of the great estate and the park. And it's been given to us by great city planners like Olmsted in, in creating Central Park in New York City. That's a cultural idea. It has nothing to do with nature. In the 19th century, nature was objective and the observer was subjective and had no value. All value, therefore, came by decreasing subjective contamination to achieve a reading of nature which was pure and true, and the most pure was where human was least present, as in reading a meter. Uh, we now have the same thing, only we call it deep ecology, that nature in its purest, that's not contaminated by trailer parks, that's not contaminated by weekend hikers, that's not contaminated by selling pharmaceuticals from the Amazon rainforest for Sibagaygi companies or something of this sort, that, that that is nature in its purest and its uncontaminated state. But there is no such thing as that nature. That's a fiction. Nature is the horizon of culture. Every time you change cultures, you change the horizon. So nature in a shamanic culture might have uh, angels and elementals and, and spirits. Nature in a cybernetic cyberpunk landscape might have uh, machines that were ensouled by IntelliKeys. Cyberpunk, in case the term is new, as it was to me, is a literary genre working the blurred boundary between reality and its simulations. The best-known example is William Gibson's novel, Neuromancer. Gibson's characters have electrodes implanted in their skulls. They jack in and cruise the video landscapes and virtual realities of what Gibson calls cyberspace. Intelliki in this context means a soul or guiding spirit. Imagine, say, for example, the cyberpunk world of Neuromancer. Here we're going into the sci-fi landscape of the unnatural. 
in a Hopi culture, you would take the molecular lattice of a, of a sacred mountain and a, a Holy Spirit would ensoul the holy mountain and then the shaman going into meditation would commune with the mountain and have a vision. In a cyberpunk landscape, the molecular lattice of a cybernetic organism would be ensouled by an entelechy and the a druid wizard who was, you know, uh, jacking into cyberspace would begin to commune to the spirit that had ensouled that mechanism. Now, for us in our 19th century romantic world where we think nature is trees and mountains, but not that other technology, that is abhorrent, that is evil, and that is unnatural. But I think if one really wants to understand what's going on in the shifting horizons of our culture, one has to understand nature as going in two directions simultaneously. One is the return to nature with the greens, and the other is the destruction of nature in the cyberpunk landscape of things like Blade Runner or Neuromancer. And unless you look at both of those edges of our culture and ask yourself, what is nature? I don't think you'll really come up with the, the transformation that's going on right under our nose. The obvious difference between the Hopi shaman and the cyberpunk neuromancer mm -hmm. is that the one is human-made, the other is not. Well, we didn't make the silicone, and we didn't make the electrical pulses, and we didn't make the laws of, nat of physics and nature and entropy and all of those other things. So at one level... So to say no that that's human-made is... Let me give you Lynn Margulis' uh, example of what is nature. She said all the environmentalists come to Boston, uh, and they look at Boston Harbor and say, it's dead, and it's polluted, and it's unnatural. And she says, no, I see all my friends out there, meaning all her bacteria that she studies. And they're chewing the tires, and they're you know, frolicking in the oil slick. And you have a whole sense that it is, a, it is an arrogant consumer's 19th century aristocratic image of nature that we're talking about. So nature is a fiction. Nature, I think the only precise way you can define it is there is no such thing as nature. Nature is the horizon of culture. And whatever you are in and whatever human activity, you will always have a horizon, you know? Well, then how can ecology provide the moral dimension in political science, which you said it would become? Because ecology is actually studying processes within our horizon. You know, I didn't say that there wasn't a horizon to our consciousness. So ecology is studying how does a cell work, how does a swamp work, how does a marsh work, how do actually biological processes uh, enter into a dialogue, and we find that they interact with, with human beings. So Rene Dubose would say, uh, if you look at the horizon of, of Florence, uh, you see a man-made artifact. You're seeing the beautiful Tuscan hills and the, and the vineyards, and you're seeing something that's been sculpted by humans in the same way that a beaver would, would create a dam or in the same way that a bacterial mat would create a stromatolite, which is a kind of an artifact left from bacterial activity. Uh, the, the schist here, the gunflint schist in Ontario, uh, is actually the remnant, the iron ore is the remnants of the oxidation processes of bacteria from zillions of years ago. So it's uh, when Lynn talked about that, my mind flashed with Disney, you know, and dwarves in the mines as uh, what the meaning of the old animistic myth is. So the first thing that comes up with Gaia is the division between animal, vegetable, and mineral of the old quiz game breaks down. Uh, there is not a wall between them. It's a shifting uh, and highly permeable membrane. So you don't want to say the mineral is unnatural. You know, is, uh, what is, you know, do you want to say 
uh, nature only begins to be nature when there is when there are animals and trees, or do you want to take it back to the origins life? But what about before life evolved, the prebiotic soup? Uh, what about the mineral period, uh, the Hadean epoch, before we had even you know uh, prebiotic molecules kicking around in the ocean? That has to be seen as nature. But if we study these things and say, okay, now we can see that it's an industrial cultural mentality to come in and level Kansas and put in, you know, wheat, that the prairie operates in a different way and has a more complex dialogue. But you don't want to rationalize or romanticize it and say it was pure when the Indians were there because they came in and they had uh, prairie fires, and they burned out a lot of the higher vegetation, and they, as much as we can tell, would create stampedes with fire to have all the animals you know, fall off a cliff and have a huge slaughter. It's called the, the extinction of the Pleistocene megafauna. So that there were intrusions on nature in the period of, what, 9,000, 8,000 BC, that uh, were when Gary Snyder's Indians were the only inhabitants of this continent, but they were doing stuff that was changing nature, and they were sculpting the prairies. And so everywhere we look in, quote, nature, we see processes like that going on, and they then teach us about how culture works and uh, how we understand the interrelationship of, of opposites in a condition of health. The Gaia hypothesis shows all creatures actively constructing their environments and, in effect, becoming environments for each other. A tree isn't just standing there in the environment. It's creating the environment by entraining the forces of wind and water, developing the soils, and making a home for a myriad of other beings who, in turn, serve the tree. This Gaian perspective offers an understanding of evolution quite different from the classical Darwinian view. Thompson's close associate, Francisco Varela, suggests replacing the term natural selection with the words natural drift in order to eliminate the fiction of a stable environment which can do the selecting. In his essay, In Gaia, A Way of Knowing, Varela illustrates the concept with the translation of a poem by Antonio Machado. Wanderer, the poem says, the road is your footsteps, nothing else. In wandering, you lay down a path, Turn back, and path there is none, only tracks on ocean foam. Let's go back to this old way of thinking, the object in the container, the organism in the niche. Now, that is, uh, that's a way of thinking in biology that none of my colleagues in this mind jazz ensemble would accept. So what you, what you get now is that animals, through their metabolic processes that are shared in a common uh, phase space extrude and an evolutionary landscape so that their their excretions and their uh, inhalations everything are creating a kind of dialogue through time and so they're they're climbing on top of one another's niches and one will uh, create a form of pollution that's a disaster and the other one will scurry around very quickly and then slowly begin to adapt to say the presence of the oxygen excreted by the cyanobacteria and then that begins to change the the atmosphere and then people begin to change to the atmosphere so the dance of life is now seen more in terms of what Varela calls natural drift rather than adaptation and so in this particular way the old notion is you have to adapt or you're going to uh, die and uh, so it's 
identity isn't a gene which you can manipulate, and there's an organism that must adapt to its niche, which it's clamped into its niche. In the other prigogine kind of biology, the organisms are actually dancing, and they are extruding their environment. So it's like a river that is changing the banks at the same time that the banks are, are sculpting the river and the river is sculpting the bank. And the landscape that emerges, so you have to change your language. So, so Varela uses lang lovely poetic language like brought forth, worlds are brought forth, or you use concepts of emergence. So the, the particular evolutionary landscape that's brought forth is radically different at, at each particular time. And so nature is changing all, all through this. Since you've mentioned Varela and you alluded to him earlier, could you say, this has been an important colleague of yours, I think. Mm -hmm. Can you say well, who I, he is and what the new biology you've spoken about well, is? He, uh, he's, his voyage is an interesting one in terms of planetary culture. He started out as a teenager reading Heidegger in German in, in Santiago as a kid who grew up in a mountain village in the Andes. Got his PhD at Harvard at age 23 and then... Uh, you know, uh, moved into, uh, in the 70s, into studying Tibetan Buddhism with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in Boulder and came and lived at Lindisfarne's, you know, scientist, scholar-in-residence in the in the 70s. And we've been working together on a program for biology, cognition, and ethics over the last three years and have written four books together that'll, that are in the process of appearing. So he's uh, he's definitely a colleague and has been he's been one of those who's greatly, you know, influenced my, my thinking. And he enabled me to try to make the connection between cognitive science and the, the Gaia hypothesis and try to build a bridge between... E See, what I'm trying to do is connect ecology and biology and cognitive science and political science. For example, in the old days, you could have cities were charismatic and you would have the idea that elites would be in a city and particular cities would carry the civilizational energy for time. So you would have, like... T.S. Eliot in London, or you would have Jean-Paul Sartre in Paris. And now, I think, right at the time we're beginning to look in terms of Gaian processes at large, of how the, the circulation of the plankton in the sea affects the formation of the clouds, affects the albedo uh, reflection of the solar radiation, affects the temperature of the planet, we're beginning to see that civilization is no longer kivitas, it's no longer located in a city. It's a distributive lattice, which is a concept that comes out of cognitive science. And Varela is a cognitive scientist. He's a neurophysiologist. And this is a particular term that comes out of a branch of cognitive science that's called connectionism, that's devoted to trying to create slower computers with fuzzy logic that think analogically rather than fast computers that work digitally with just gates of off on one zero. And in this particular way, the only way they can achieve the complexity is through parallel distributive processing. And so the, the ideas in the brain are not simply located in one cell. They're a distributive lattice that organizes the whole brain into a domain or a state. Parallel distributive processing and connectionist lattices are, and, and uh, emergent states that have the capacity to learn is precisely what we're talking about when we're dealing with Gaia. You know, what is, Gaia is a system of learning that maintains itself over time. Uh, Varela has also studied the immune system, and from another point of view, you could say that you could define Gaia almost as the immune system of the planet that maintains its selfness, its self-identity over time, so that if you look at Gaia in the, at the atmospheric level, 
uh, with Lovelock's work in atmospheric chemistry, and then you look as the, say, the macrocosm, and then you look at the uh, microcosm of the bacteria with Lynn Margulis, where she'll argue that bacteria are not distinct species, they are one superorganism of a planetary bioplasm, which is an idea that's been developed by Sorin Sonea in his new bacteriology in Montreal. Uh, matter of fact, the leading expert of this is Sorin Sonia in, uh, in Montreal. That that gives you a planetary bioplasm, and if you study the immune system in the individual, that gives you a particular entity that isn't a discrete object, but is like a an enclouded self that is maintaining through the blood and through the marrow a, a definition of selfhood over time, where that the self really begins to be the phase space of the body in the same way that if you study the movement of a Foucault pendulum, its phase space is larger than the ball. And so the concept of, of dynamics and learning and how a, 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 a metadynamic can emerge from a highly connected system so that it begins to be self-naming, autonomous, and maintain that autonomy and identity over time begins to be really fascinating. In order to understand those, because they're processes and not objects, you, you have to say, I need a new geometry to be able to perceive these, because the, my old geometry always asked me to look for an object. But this is saying, no, uh, an object is not a phase space, that you need not to think in terms of Euclidean geometry, but in terms of chaos dynamics. Chaos dynamics refers to a new science, able to make mathematical models of complex forms, a wave breaking smoke rising from a cigarette in turbulent air, the flow of air over the wing of a bird in flight. It belongs to a new phase of mathematics, able to describe the interacting processes which comprise Gaia. This heady brew is what Thompson calls the new biology. I myself find it somewhat unnerving because it pictures a world without a ground, without, as Varela says explicitly, a privileged perspective. It offers no way of clearly demarcating the human from the continuum of life. Inside Gaia's magic bubble, where identity derives from a process and not an object, all boundaries seem permeable and impermanent. Out of this, Thompson conjures the vision of a new politics, based not on turf and egotistical interests, but on what he calls noetic ecologies, temporary structures of shared information like say, the live aid concerts for African famine relief, which dissolve, disappear, and reform like clouds. I wondered aloud during our conversation about the sense of home in such a world. Do you see any danger of losing rootedness, embodied embodiment, sense of place, by adopting this ecology of consciousness? Well, I guess that's why I've always been involved in contemplative practice, because... You know, I had this argument with Wendell Berry once at Lindisfarne in Colorado, and Wendell, for me, who's you know is a is a close friend as well as a as a Lindisfarne you know fellow, and and we've all been thinking out loud in these you know jam sessions for the last twelve years. And Wendell was going on about his rootedness and and staying spirit of place, and and um, you know his his family have been in Henry County, Kentucky, for nine generations, and I'm. Uh, you know, I'm more of an electron than a nucleus. I don't have a, a location, so I, I'm almost Wendell's exact opposite. And so I 
have a tendency to feel that I'm deracinated, that I'm unnatural, that I'm unrooted, that I have no uh, sense of identity, that I'm your typical uh, uprooted academic nomadic intellectual. So I remember feeling frustrated. I said, damn it, Wendell, you keep talking about place, but I see, you know, I stay here, but I see the monarch butterflies heading for Mexico, you know, I see the hummingbirds leaving me to spend the winter, and over the horizon I imagine the whales heading south, you know. It wasn't the rich that invented this lifestyle, it was, quote, animals in nature. So what is all this stuff? And I said, as a matter of fact, the 19th century farm is perhaps one more disastrous imposition on nature, that if we go back to 9000 B.C., uh, before agricultural had gotten fixed with surpluses, we have a season around in, in, in gathering, and we have hunting and gathering and fishing, and we don't have uh, value so much fixed in location. It was the increasing uh, surplus of grains that allowed us to start holding food in containers and then surrounding our buildings you know, with walls, and then men could take their hunting bow and arrows and use them for raids, and raids grew into warfare. So you can say that agriculture, the fixing of value in turf, is inseparable from militarism, and that to say that identity is only valuable uh, in fixed values means you're going to have to get your AK-47, it's me and the missus and my rifle, and everybody else is the threat. So I don't, I don't draw my identity from fixed turf or from my meat body. I, uh, I find my identity much more involved in, in very complex topological processes that move more than, than in three dimensions. So this enables me to uh, live in a way that might be disorienting for uh, someone who's, you know, in a 19th century family farm. The debate between Bill Thompson and Wendell Berry is one that now divides the entire environmental movement. As Donald Worcester and Wolfgang Sachs have both argued, ecology has always been an ambivalent field of thought, containing both a modern and an anti-modern mood, as science it's modern. As a romantic reaction to science, it's anti-modern. Thompson has committed himself unequivocally to science and has faced the consequences, the end of any stable or permanent idea of nature, including human nature. His choice highlights the much more conservative mood of other elements in the environmental movement. Thompson calls the Greens, for example, a nativistic movement, a movement which sees the past as the future. Part of their project in Bar Rudolf Barrow and others is to sort of go back to a pre-industrial society and to try to recover archaic terms. They don't want to deal with the world of chaos dynamics and mathematics and big science and space probes to, the, to Mars or whatever. They have a very reactionary view. It's basically a nativistic movement. It seems to me that at one time you yourself may have held these contradictions together, too. Oh, I, I'm sure I still hold contradictions because I think you couldn't have a, a, a brain or a complex personality unless you embraced opposites. I think the creative process is inherently one of the dance of opposites. It's a complex kind of alchemy, and that any other simplifying ideology always falsifies one, one side of our nature. So I did set up Lindisfarne as a younger person more naively as a nativistic movement. It would be the revival of the humanities in an age of technology. And since I couldn't do it at MIT, I quit MIT and came to York, and then I found that the vision for the development of a modern university at York was Stanford at MIT to basically boost the Ontarian economy, and that the humanities were 
not what I had in mind. So then I quit and set up Lindisfarne, and it became captured by too much nativism, trying to go back rather than forward. It was not the prophetic imagination, it was the aggressive one. And the whole New Age movement is full of that. I mean, look, Neolithic, matrilineal uh, agricultural villages, palmistry, dowsing, Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, these are all cultures we've been there before. Uh, this isn't new stuff, this is old stuff. I mean, it's good stuff, but it's old, you know, but it's called the New Age, but it, you know, it's not new. And so it was at that point that I began to be aware that in the dynamic of understanding the complexity of change, your imagination was too limited to what Marshall McLuhan would call looking in the rearview mirror. And to really get a sense of the horizon, you had to ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What terrifies the hell out of me? Where do I see evil in the unnatural? And then I think in, one confronts evil in the unnatural. This is why I became fascinated with cyberpunk landscapes. Then one begins to see where the emergent change is really occurring. And if one has a prophetic imagination, then one begins to realize that the, the, the transformation of evil into good, the, the Christic transformation of the Mephistophelian that Goethe studied, is always been with us and is most likely to occur in those areas where we're afraid. And once we walk through our fears and understand the disintegration of nature, the end of nature, understand that we're at the edge of the flesh, then the novel and the unexpected becomes possible. Then I began getting interested, where did this happen in history before? And then I, I had realized I had called my, my nativistic movement the Lindisfarne Association, and that was named after a, a Cel bunch of Celtic monks who I thought you know, were affecting the transition from disintegrating Greco-Roman world order to the emerging medieval Christendom. But Lindisfarne also was blessed as being the first monastery sacked by the Viking Terror in 793. Now, the Viking terror was interesting because if you want to pick a period in time where the Mediterranean cultural ecology uh, shifted to what would become the Atlantic and shifted outward to first the Netherlands, then England, then the United States, the Viking terror is actually the first shift of the projection outward from, from the Mediterranean cultural ecology to the Atlantic. And the places they chose to attack were the monasteries, namely the central nervous system of medieval Christendom. So the Viking terror is an evil phenomenon, but it's a signal of the emerging next level of organization, which becomes Atlantic civilization. And so I asked myself, well, where have I seen that one before? And of course, I had just been reading Margulis's and Jim Lovelock's books, where they defined oxygen as the greatest pollution disaster to ever hit this planet and had driven all the anaerobic bacteria down into the slime. So some of the architectonic events of evolution are such that you can't block them and mark them and keep the records in terms of simple good. You have to see the interpenetrating dynamic of good and evil. And when you begin thinking in that larger scale, then sure, there are bad guys out there who are going to degrade and co-opt every idea that I can spit out. There are Shirley MacLaine's who are going to be movie stars, you know, selling yoga on, you know, talk shows. Oh, that's a process of degradation that's like a compost heap. It just means those ideas have had their time and they're just breaking them down. And what you get from digestion are broken down ideas. I can only deal with my way of thinking if... Uh, I try to look at a, a bigger picture because otherwise I think you just get depressed because you, you want to be optimistic and optimism always demands that something happen now in the ego's time frame and I just don't think that's big enough.
Thompson's realization that his own Lindisfarne Association had been, in part, a nativistic movement, was tied to what he was seeing in the new biology, a world in which time and change produce constant novelties, a world without an external Archimedean point from which it can be viewed, a world where the sacred means something very different than in the traditional schools Lindisfarne was originally intended to revive. I began to understand why some of the, the school that I had actually helped bring together and funded for, uh, the School of Sacred Architecture, made me unhappy because I remember an argument with Keith Critchlow in London who was, you know, uh, not a, a reactionary and uh, he's a, you know, a kind of Summer Hill educated uh, English Labour Party socialist. But he's very much committed to the platonic idea and he pointed to his watch and said, the center is fixed, you know, and that all the world of temporality and change and appearance just goes round and round and round. And so there was the whole idea that nothing is ever new and that values are, f are fixed. And I had a kind of deep experience in meditation one day where all of that just died to me. It was like a real death experience. And then I, it was like I could feel a metanoia where my mentality changed and I sort of moved out of that. And then intellectually I began to understand and appreciate that there was a new mathematics on the horizon that was part and parcel of the true new age and was not this medieval Platonism. And I, I had grown up with, with Whitehead as my high school culture hero, and so I was always a Platonist. And at that point, in around 1983, I diverged and split and resigned from the new age and, and began moving. And so I began much more interested in my association with people like Ralph Abraham and Francisco Varela and less in the earlier project where I had been working vigorously with Keith Critchlow and Kathleen Rain, and very much in the idea of the return to the past in a kind of Yeatsian romanticism. The original Lindisfarne was a monastery, a cultural enclave in an era that history has called the Dark Ages. And during the late 70s, in books like Darkness and Scattered Light, Thompson did see the new Lindisfarne in essentially monastic terms. He now rejects this view. When I set up Lindisfarne as preserving the humanities in an age of, you know, the dark age metaphor, we have to preserve knowledge in an age of uh, uh, change or, or loss. What I didn't appreciate was that the metaphor was right, but the content of, of little enclaves off in Oroville, Fintorn, or us out at the end of the island was misplaced concreteness and was too literal that we were going through a period of cultural loss in which there would be incredible degradation of literate culture, that we would end up with books and the New York uh, uh, editorial elite becoming just a commodity marketing thing, and that Time magazine would decay to the level of people, and uh, newspapers would come down to the level of USA Today, and television, Sesame Street, would ensure the children didn't have an attention span. So we've gone through an incredible period of the loss of literate culture. Now, in that sense... Lindisfarne was an attempt to bring together artists and scientists and, you know, poets and painters and, and folk to hold on to some levels of culture at a period when we were just getting the Shirley MacLaine of, you know, of everything. And so its, its model was defensive of identity. It was the profane again. It's us versus them. And I think that was um, unimaginative and inappropriate on my part. Uh, that it was too, uh, too narrow and didn't understand the larger process. Now, see, if I had invested my identity in that, I would be a bitter intellectual, hating the modern world, 
Now, as a matter of fact, I've talked to many professors of English literature. I'm thinking of a vivid conversation, one, one in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he hates the young. He hates music videos. He hates David Byrne and Talking Heads. He wants them to go back to Alan Tate and William Faulkner and, and you know, I take my stand with Dixie. So his, his whole response of an English teacher in electronic culture is one of bitter, in bitterness and, and hatred of the young. And that's where that position leads to. So if I don't invest my identity in that and see degradation as a digestion process, then even Shirley MacLaine has, you know, her way of signaling that the New Age movement is over and now that it's getting broadcast everywhere, it's time to you know, let it go and move on to, to other things, and that she is providing actually a public health service for, for people. Then I can feel less threatened and less uh, paranoid. Bill Thompson's thought has always been based on the insight that historical outcomes are inevitably paradoxical. Human beings, by definition, can never know what they are doing, because the rational mind can only illuminate one thing by obscuring another. The world is therefore a structure of unconscious relations, as Thompson says, and planetary culture can only be the result of a process apparently driven by terror and greed. The Gaia hypothesis offers Thompson a physical cosmology in which these paradoxes of history make sense. Gaia is the larger systemic mind of which we are the unconscious parts. We cannot be conscious of this greater mind by definition, but we can identify ourselves with it. And it is this identification, I think, which animates Bill Thompson. If one adopts a big picture, the normal response is, I've just lost my sense of value and, and location. And how can I be motivated to go out tomorrow and join, you know, Sierra Club or Greenpeace or, or whatever? And so the um, the larger scale of time is disorienting if one adopts, if one has as one's value of one's identity an ego with an agenda. It is a shattering experience. So what follows from that immediately is a sense of disvaluation because their value, their identity has been invested into the container model again with a particular agenda of, ac of action that's going to enhance their value. And therefore they think that if one has that disorientation, that it leads immediately to nihilism, because the flip side of idealism is nihilism. In point of fact, I'm not on that pH scale at all. I don't, in order to be empowered to act and to do what I feel is the value, I don't think it has to occur in my own lifetime, that I'm perfectly willing to involve myself in a project where I may never see the results of the activity, which is the original reason for calling it Lindisfarne, because the monks didn't live to see the Cathedral of Chartres, the monks of Lindisfarne in, in uh, 635. So that the if you're dealing with a systemic shift from one world system to another, that's not in the clock time of an individual life. There, You're talking about the shift from Greco-Roman to medieval, or from medieval to modern, or from our modern to the new planetary culture, saying that we're coming out of the world systems from, say, 1500 to 1945. So I don't involve myself in either pessimism or optimism. I find that a, um, a more contemplative sense of the big picture is actually empowering, because if I took too narrow a point of view, I'd really get bummed out, because I'd be only looking at the short-term thing, and the short-term thing always shows you, you know, bad guys 99, good guys zero. You know, we haven't even got a chance to score one for our side. 
but if one looks at a larger picture and says that, you know, once we were, you know, eukaryotic bacteria and once we were dinosaurs and then we were hominids and then we adopted this, you know, contradiction between animals and apes that we like to call human and now the human is ending and we're moving into some end of nature and end of human nature with it and it's beyond our imagination but it involves a, uh, a revisioning of, of identity and value and politics and science and everything else. I find that empowering rather than disempowering. When writing came in, it was a threat to oral culture, and it was seen as um, a threat to memory. There's a quote of Plato's where he talks about, you know, writing as the, the attack on memory. And we go through a period of darkness, and then after a couple of centuries, we get, lo and behold, something called sacred texts. And we suddenly begin to get Upanishads and, you know, uh, the Bible becoming a, a Torah and a canon. And now the sacred is invested in what before was, was evil. There's a wonderful story that a friend of mine, a physicist at Lindisfarne named Lou Balamuth, used to tell of two people standing by a stream watching ants on, a, on a, a log flowing down a turbulent stream, and the ants keep moving their position to stay out of the water. And uh, one guy says to the other, gosh, look at those ants move. And he said, yeah, and those ants think they're driving that thing. The Age of Ecology continues next Friday evening on Ideas with a conversation with Murray Bookchin and Stuart Hill. Heard on tonight's program were scientist James Lovelock and culture historian William Irwin Thompson. The program was prepared and presented by David Kaling. Production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Technical operations Lauren Tulk. Producer Jill Eisen. Transcripts of this eight-part series are available for $20. Send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.
when writing came in, it was a threat to oral culture, and it was seen as um, a threat to memory. There's a quote of Plato's where he talks about, you know, writing as the, the attack on memory. And we go through a period of darkness, and then after a couple of centuries, we get, lo and behold, something called sacred texts. And we suddenly begin to get Upanishads and, you know, uh, the Bible becoming a, a Torah and a canon. And now the sacred is invested in what before was, was evil. There's a wonderful story that a friend of mine, a physicist at Lindisfarne named Lou Balamuth, used to tell of two people standing by a stream watching ants on a, on a, a log flowing down a turbulent stream, and the ants keep moving their position to stay out of the water. And uh, one guy says to the other, gosh, look at those ants move. And he said, yeah, and those ants think they're driving that thing. Mm -hmm. 